The following podcast may contain graphic content and details that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Digital Forensics in Real Life for the second part of the case about Mary Yoder. If you haven't heard the first part, you'll want to go back and listen to part one to bring you up to speed. And if you heard part one, remember Caitlin Conley's trial had just ended with a hung jury and we'll pick up the examination of the iPhone backups. As a reminder, our guest for this episode is Tony Martino, the forensic investigator who worked through the case. With that, here's Tony to tell us about the case. Tell me what happens. So... Straight off the bat, I know, 30 seconds into the examination of that backup, I know something's going on because I remember doing the forensic exam of Caitlin's physical phone when she turns it in. And I remember that her physical phone has somewhere in the vicinity of maybe five or 6,000 images on it, which for a 20-something female uh, is low. Right. I've done a lot of these and I you, you just kind of have this this uh, view in your head of of what a typical phone owned by someone of this age in this demographic would would have on it. And hers just had lo- a lot less of that. Um, so as soon as the as the backup is brought up and processed by the software, there's 11000 images on the phone. So somewhere in a about a two-month span between the backup being taken of her phone and her phone being seized by the police, about 6,000 images go missing. That's just not common, right? Especially for someone in this age group. They keep everything. Um, so right off the bat, I'm like, something's up, right? So, something's up. Someone has gone on a delete-a-thon on this phone prior to the police getting their hands on it. Did you start to compare the two? Absolutely. That was a number one, right? Put these two next to each other and show me everything that, you know, that is uncommon between them. And immediately things start popping up that are of interest to our investigation. Screenshots of information about Colchicine, uh, screenshots of studies that were done about the toxicity of Colchicine in human beings. It's just one after another. Screenshots of web browsing activity to websites that list the the like 10 most toxic substances on the earth. And where you know my eyes are just getting bigger and bigger. I I actually think I I like failed to go home that evening at the end of the day because I was just glued to this thing. I was just like, wow. Uh, you know, that's when the light. You know, you get that moment where the light bulb goes off, and you're like, I have what we really really need here. Um, so, uh, you know, we just kept digging, and the more we dug, the more we found. Did you find any communication between Caitlin and Mary? There was communication. There had been communication previously that she had shown the police uh, and turned over. And there was also some communication between the two that, that was found on her physical phone when she when it was seized by the by the police. And, and honestly, none of it was of interest to the investigation. It was all very friendly. It was all 
a lot of it was business. Some of it, you know, Caitlin was beyond the office manager because she she had worked there for years. She had had the romantic relationship with their son. She was family friend. She was close. So yeah, there was communications just kind of randomly talking about, you know, coming over for dinner on some night or you know, exchanging pleasantries about whatever. There were also communications with um, between Caitlin and Bill as Mary was lying in the hospital, getting sicker and sicker by the minute. Um, but again, very, very just uh, not interesting. Was know, she very... checking on Mary? I think so. I, I think I think she was fishing for information. Uh, she, they weren't, they weren't by themselves keeping her in the loop. So she was very blind to what was going on. Mary just got sicker and sicker during the day at the office. And eventually, um, you know, Bill came to the office and got her and brought her to the hospital. Um, but then, you know, then Caitlin was in the dark. Uh, so, uh, much like, you know, we've all heard and seen the cases where, your, your criminal starts hanging around the crime scene because they, they want to know what's, what, what the police know. Um, and uh, I think it was a lot like that. She, she didn't really know what, it, what the outcome was, right? Uh, for all she knew, Mary, uh, they gave her a magic pill and Mary was better and uh, had already gone home. So she and Adam aren't together at this point. No, they are not together. And Adam is actually not even physically in town. He had moved away. So, yeah, he's hours, he's hours away from Utica at that time. So what else was on this phone that ended up being evidence to be presented at this next trial? So the the probably the one of the most interesting things about Caitlin Conley and her cell phone is she keeps extensive notes that she takes to herself. Uh, and I, I keep referring to them as streams of consciousness um, because they're unstructured. Uh, it's not like, oh, here's my note with my grocery list and here's my note of like things I want to do on my next vacation. And it's not like that at all. It's just this, this documentation of like whatever comes into her head at the moment. And it's just typed into a note and she just keeps appending to it. So you could literally have a note that says, um, milk, eggs, two pounds of butter, I like blue t-shirts, and I'm going to go horseback riding at 4 p.m. They're incongruent. It's just dropping thoughts into digital typed notes on the phone. Um, and they're extensive. I mean, they go for paragraphs and paragraphs, and there's hundreds of them. And some of them are shopping lists. Some of them are reminders of songs she likes to listen to. It's just all all over the map. One of them discusses, like, eating cake. It's just... Uh, but in the middle of all of this, little pieces start popping up that look familiar. And so there's an entire several sentences in the middle of a note about life in general about basically roughing out why Adam is the culprit in Mary Yoder's death. And if you read it, it roughs out what becomes... It's an outline of the letter, the anonymous letter, that goes to the sheriff and the medical examiner. So she basically typed the outline of the letter and all her thoughts on what needs to be in that letter in a note 
on her phone. Well, that note gets deleted prior to the police seizing her phone. So we don't have it until we examine the backup. We, the other interesting thing is, in a different note, in a different place, at a different time, she decides that one of those sentences should not be used and it should be rephrased. And that's the modification we see happening in Google Docs where a whole paragraph disappears and it comes back as a different subject. Uh, so she basically was thinking about you know, editing her own, her own work. Um, that's interesting. There's notes in there about the Adam Yoder Gmail that gets created by her, accessed only by her, used to, to purchase and make all the communications to purchase the poison. She makes a note about not only what the email address is, but what the password is. She puts it in a note to herself, most likely, so she can't forget the password. Uh, so the, the account name itself clearly designed to... Uh, look as though it's Adam's account. The, the name itself is Mr. Adam Yoder, 1990. Uh, but she had also noted the password itself. So in her notes, she notes A is gay. And as a note underneath the username, uh, and in actuality, the entire password that logs into that account is Adam is gay spelled out. And then we start seeing formulas. Um, and at first, they don't make a lot of sense until we read the document that she had viewed um, about the toxicity of colchicine in human beings. It was, a re it was a medical research article. And in that document, it details what is the medically accepted lethal dose of colchicine in a human being. And they express it as the amount of milligrams of colchicine per kilogram of body weight of the human being. So this is all explained in this document. And, they, and the formula is right in the document. It says, this is how you figure it out. It, it takes, and I don't remember the numbers, but it, you know, it, it takes you know, one milligram per kilogram of body weight. So in her notes, we see her computing a number into kilograms. And that number, when we go back and ask, is Mary Yoder's weight. Oh, wow. And then we see a computation of how many milligrams of coltracine would be the lethal dose for a human being that weighs that number of kilograms. This is all in her notes on her cell phone. So she's got a plan. She's got a plan. Um uh, the only thing I would say is her plan, I, I guess, didn't include an actual ability to measure because the amount of colchicine that ends up in Mary Yoder's body is enough to kill probably five people or whatever. It's She, it, she probably didn't have any mechanism for measuring milligrams, <laughs> but, uh, but she did the computation and she kept it. She saved it. It was in her notes. And to me... That's just looking back on the whole trial of all the information and all the evidence. I spent three days testifying in this trial of all of it. To me, that's the most powerful thing. I mean, right. there's just no other way to explain it. 
like, oh, I have a, co- uh, a hobby of computing lethal doses of toxins in people who weigh the same exact amount as my boss, who, by the way, got killed by the same toxin. No, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. So is there any way that someone else did this on her phone? No, flat out no. And, uh, you know, this gets asked at trial, of course. And uh, the, the defense raised it. But I, I have to say, honestly, they did a terrible job of it. Uh, I, I, I think, it, you know, if you look at the defense and like I said, there's certain things they did really well. Uh, and I'm always willing to give credit where credit is due, even if you're on the other side of this than that, than I am. Uh, and there are things in both trials that they did very well. Uh, I think the thing they did very poorly was to try to bring up that topic because they brought it up and then basically ran from it. They didn't provide any background. They didn't educate the jury at all with why they were asking. They didn't bring in any experts to talk about it. They didn't show any examples of, you know, when, how, you know, why. They didn't have their own forensic exam done. They, they didn't hire their own examiner to do their own exam, um, which I, I found very odd. I, I mean, I, they probably, because they knew what the answer was going to be. So, you know, we spent a fair amount of time on that because we knew it was coming. You know, it was another one of those things when you look at the motion, when you listen, you, we, we, we knew it was coming. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, Caitlin Conley's cellular phone was an Apple iPhone. Apple iPhones are n- almost notorious for their privacy. Uh, you know, we all lived through uh, the outfall of the San Bernardino, San Bernardino terrorist shooting, uh, where the FBI was begging, pleading, and threatening Apple to let them into the shooter's phone. And Apple said no. And by the way, hell no, too. Um, So if the FBI, and we all know how this ends, the FBI eventually gets into it with, with some help from outside entities. But if the FBI has to beg, plead, and threaten, then your average Joe on the street is certainly not going to be able to gain access to that phone. Uh, and the defense's argument is, you know, in the second trial was, well, it was Adam. And um, about their only backup for that is, well, Adam went to college. Well, by the way, Adam didn't even graduate from college. He, he took like two computer science courses. Uh, so certainly we, we there's no expectation that taking two computer science courses at a local state university is going to give you the the expertise to hack a, an iPhone remotely um, from distance and control it. Um, but nonetheless, we, we put the we put the work in. We examined every single app on the phone to ensure that none of them, even though we know Apple's really good about keeping their ecosystem clean, right? They just, if your app allows like remote access, remote connectivity, it's not going in the app store, right? It's just not. But we did it anyways, right? We we looked at every single app that was on the phone. Uh, none of those apps had any known vulnerabilities. Uh, they, her phone was up to date. It had all of its latest iOS, et cetera, et cetera. Um, none of those apps were designed in any way to allow remote access. Uh, in addition, you know, we pulled as much of 
Uh, now, mind you, again, we're backing up several years here. So some of the current technology that's out there for for getting deeper into older iPhones didn't exist back then. But but we, we could do a pretty good job. We got a lot of information on that phone. And you know, we looked at even apps that had been there but been uninstalled. We, we looked at uh, accounts that were left behind from apps and then looked at those apps. And we hit a dead end, right, everywhere. There was absolutely not one shred of evidence that anyone of any stature from a technological standpoint gained access to her phone or had access to her phone or changed data on her phone in any way. And, you know, we did the same thing I talked about with her office desktop. We did user attribution and we looked at all the communications on her phone and all of what's happening on her phone. And we're proving just day after day after day that it's her. She's logging into her accounts. She's having extensive conversations, text and iMessage and other conversations with her family. And these are all surrounding the events that are of interest to us, right? Notes are getting created at almost the exact same time that she's having an hour-long text conversation with family and friends. So what you're telling me is that Adam generated this backup of Caitlin's phone on his laptop. Yes. Then, uh, in order for him to do that, though, he connected physically her phone to that laptop uh, via cable. Yes. And so he had that phone in his hand while she was asleep, right? Yes. Okay, that's that's what we're told. He has the phone in his hand while she's asleep. He connects it to his laptop. And because she had actually allowed this to happen previously, right? Yes. So it had already been, what they say, paired, right? It's paired. It's trusted. Yes. Yes. So yep. this was a while back. You know, we've talked about Apple security a little bit here, but Apple security changes. And yep. every time it changes, it gets more secure, not less. So back then, you're telling me that... He didn't necessarily need any more information then, uh, except to have that phone in his hand, plug it up, and then the backup just starts to generate. That, that's Yeah, you're right on the money. Because her phone had been paired with his laptop and, and someone she had already hit the you know, allow iTunes to trust this, there, there were some other things that happened you know, previously. There were some places where she she intentionally plugged her phone into his laptop to charge. There was also a time where I think they actually both talked about it during interviews where she had plugged her phone into his computer and intentionally synced it to iTunes because she was downloading either music or a book on audiobook. I don't remember exactly what the what the uh, content was, but there was something she wanted to sync onto the phone. She used his laptop. So, yeah, she knowingly and willingly had uh, synchronized her phone with his iTunes on his laptop and, and already told iTunes, you can trust this device. So when we're talking about this backup, though, that's going into a file that Apple has generated as part of this backup process, right? Yes. And can our general users out there open that up? No. You had to use a forensic tool, right? Yes. So the, the file is not humanly readable. 
Um, it's first of all, it's compressed on top of everything else so that, you know, her 64 gigabyte phone wasn't occupying 64 gigabytes of his hard drive on his laptop, but it's, it's also just in a, in a completely non-humanly readable format. So it's not like, oh, you know, Adam could have just gone in and double clicked a folder and seen all of her text messages as little balloons. Like you see them on your phone. No, not at all. This is raw data. Um, it, it does not contain any of the, any humanly readable content. Uh, we were only able to analyze it by taking that raw file and putting it in a forensics tool that took several hours to reinflate back into something that's humanly readable. So Apple does that for the purposes of restoration, right? And, and backing up and making sure that they can actually put it back on another device or a way for you to get that back out later. Exactly. Yep. It's a safety net, right? I, I back up my phone to my computer. If, if I now go out and lose my phone while I'm shopping and I can never find again, I don't want to lose all my contacts, all my family photos, all of it, right? So now I go to the store, I buy a new phone, I come home, I hook it to my computer and uh, actually, you know, it does it for you. It says, hey, I see you got a new phone. Do you want all your old pictures? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's there for the user. User's benefit, and it's not just uh, like for example, let's let's talk about those those notes. You couldn't just go into that backup. Then is what you're telling me. You couldn't just open that up on your laptop and look at it and see the notes and then make a change to it, right? Just me as a regular user. Not at all. Not not at all. It's it's not editable in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Even even if you put it, even if you had a forensics tool and you inflated that whole file into that forensics tool, forensics tools can't write. So you can't make the change back. Um, it's just, yeah, it's not designed that way. And Apple did that intentionally, right? They, they want you to restore your data as it is. And, and they protect it against the corruption of that data by some outside process. Because, you know, if you think about it, um, if Apple allows you to back up your phone and then you get a new phone and they allowed a malicious piece of code to make it into the backup and then that backup to make it onto your new phone, there's now malicious code in their ecosystem. Right. Yeah. And in addition to, you know, just having somebody even, you know, mess around with it in the least bit, Apple knows exactly how that was packaged up on that backup. Yes. And then when that new device is trying to copy all of that over, you're using all these Apple tools onto Apple hardware to be able to basically put everything back where it needs to go. If you have or allow someone to mess around with that, then it may not be the way they need it to be when they're trying to give you that that service or that option, right? Yeah. It may flat out break it. Uh, so yeah, Apple actually does some checks and balances on that data. Uh, before they're willing to recover it onto your device. Um, they, they do take a look at it. Their systems take a look at it and say, yeah, this is the data as it was exported whenever ago. And it's, you know, so it's safe to restore it because it's, it's non-corrupt. So is this what you did those three days on the stand was talk about this backup? Uh, not entirely. I mean, obviously, keep in mind, you, you know, while while those of us, you know, on both sides of it, including the judge had had lived this once, the jury had not. So we, we had to do it all right. We, we had to start from square one. We had to start from where this interview began of just some computers and uh, uh, a woman who's deceased for an unknown reason. So we had to lay it all in. And the, the prosecutors, I think, to to their great 
benefit, uh, and you know, I give them all the credit in the world, looked at, you know, obviously they, they spent a lot of time staring at that first trial, reading every transcript and thinking about, you know, what could we have done better? And one of the things that came out of that was we need to educate our jury more um, because this is really technical and just slamming a bunch of Google search warrant returns up on a screen and making it available for them to look at as an exhibit in the jury room wasn't enough. Um, we're gonna have to teach them what an IP address is and why does it matter, right? Why does it actually matter? Not just what it is and how it works, but what does it mean in this case? So we, we my three days on the trial, I, I, I consistently joke that uh, what I was really doing was teaching class. Um, and I, you know, at some point I, I made a, a joke on the stand that the jury should, should get three credit hours for attending my class. Um, but, uh, but that's what we did. Every, before every piece of digital evidence was displayed, entered into evidence and admitted, we started with a robust discussion about what that content was going to be. Um, so we discussed things like IP addresses. We discussed iPhone backups at length. How do they get created? Why? What's their purpose? You know, what did it do for us? You know, on and on and on. We discussed iPhone security at length. I, the the analogy I just used with the San Bernardino shooting, I, I use that analogy on the witness stand because the jurors got it. They lived through that too. They watched those news stories and read those articles about, you know, what was going on with the FBI back then. So, so we really, I, I thought the prosecutors did a, a great job of outlining the strategy for me and then walking me through it for three days. <laughs> right. So we've got Caitlin's backup. You've got Caitlin's backup. And you've got her device as as it was, the, the most recent iteration of it there. And you go through the comparison. You see these things that have been on one device, not on the other. And what what do you think? Why do you think she got rid of those things? Well, one of the things that I, I think started becoming more evident with this additional evidence was her intent. Um, that was not as evident in what we had for the first trial and what we presented at the first trial. Um, we still don't have motive, right? We still don't have, to this day, Caitlin Conley has never sat down and said, this is why. So, so we don't know. We, we have theories. We have evidence that I think helps support theories. Um, to this day, I think all of us who worked on this team may have even, some of our theories differ, not greatly, but slightly, right? What was the real reason here? What, was, what pushed her over the edge? Um, so we, we don't have motive. Uh, but I think one of the things we lacked in the very first trial was a lot of intent. And even though the, the element of the crime didn't require us to prove that, and the prosecutor said that, that was part of their statement at, at in the courtroom to the jury. Don't expect me to, to prove intent. I don't have to, and I'm not going to. 
right? It's not an element of the crime. Don't expect me to show you the motive, right? I'm not required to. It's not an element of the crime, and I'm not going to. So I think, though, that bringing in all of that information for the second trial, I think it's helping people see the intent of Caitlin Conley, even if it wasn't required. And it, it really began to paint a picture of who she was. So we now know that we had a person who did research on a toxic substance. We have a person who did research on how much of that toxic substance would it take to kill someone. And then they actually did the math for their boss, right? They, they took the time to, to find the formula and type the formula into their cell phone and save the result. And then, and this is where I think this really helps push anyone on that jury who might have still been you know, sitting stuck on the fence, I think it shoves them over, is Caitlin Conley then goes and starts cleaning up after herself. Um, she, she deletes the pictures that are the screenshots of that core information, including that formula. She deletes the note with the formula in it. You know, there's other things that we knew all along um, that some of which we didn't go deep into in the first trial because it was, we felt it was going to cause the jury to go down too many rabbit holes. But um, for instance, we knew that a VPN had been used uh, to access some of this virtual private network. So um, if you're a chiropractic office, you probably don't use a VPN client for much, right? There was no remote access to or from the chiropractic office for official business purposes. We had already determined that. They had no mechanism for, for doing that. They did not remotely work. They didn't do any of this. And of course, this is long pre-pandemic, so there, you know, remote work wasn't really a big thing. Um, but what we found was that uh, a VPN client had been installed on the machine that a commercial VPN client, so not a point-to-point, -point, um, had been installed on the machine that Caitlin Conley used, and it had been used to obscure her identity, meaning her IP address, during access to things like the chemical company's websites and, and some others. So now we began to paint more and more of a picture for the jury of who is this person? And what are their motives? Even if we're not trying to prove the motive, you can start to infer the motive and you can start to infer the intent. And th there were other things that this married in with. We knew that she had been using um, Internet Explorer as the browser on the computer. So again, we're, re we're rewinding. This is several years back. I, Internet Explorer was still a thing. Um, and these computers were actually a little old at the time that, uh, that you know, all this was happening. So, and we knew she had been using private browsing uh, because you can see when that happens. There's artifacts that are left behind that we can see forensically that um, she had been entering private browsing. Well, of course, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know, private browsing in Internet Explorer 
uh, is you know today's inco- yesterday's incognito mode, uh, and what it does is it stops all tracking of activity. So it stops the saving of uh, browser history. It stops the caching of web pages. It stops the uh, the saving of cookies, uh, etc. So by using private browsing. Uh, she had denied us a whole lot of digital artifacts that we would otherwise, you know, look to look to use in our examination. But when someone does do that, though, they're not just doing it to go look at the grocery store list for the week, you know, or to see what's on right. sale. They're they're doing this for right. reasons, right? They're doing this for reasons, and again, we didn't say why she did it. We said what it does, right? So, and and actually the prosecutor, I, I, I remember this part of the testimony vividly because we spent some time on it. And the prosecutor did a great job of just walking me through and asking the questions that elicited, elicited the responses of what is it and what does it do? And And then we left it for the jury to decide why she would have used it. The interesting thing, so she was actually betrayed by her own antivirus. The computer she used had an old version, and it was old. It was out of date, of Kaspersky on it. And one of the things that that version of Kaspersky did was web content filtering. And it did it regardless of whether or not you were in private browsing. So Kaspersky actually had an entire log of every page she had visited. (laughs) So you're able to look through that as well. Yeah. So Kaspersky gave us just this this treasure trove of information about where she had been and when, dates, times, URLs, even information about like date, time on a URL that has a form and what's the data that's being punched into the form. And it, it just, it just, gobbled up tons of data in in modern day needs of privacy and security this never would get by right there's no chance but basically you know if for lack of a better term kaspersky was man in the middling or browser that's really what it was doing it was just sitting in between her browser and the internet and just digesting every single thing that was being done and it was caching it into a file that wasn't accessible by the user it was not clearly accessible it was not humanly readable but we found it in the forensic exam and it was a treasure trove so um i just think that when you sew all this together it gives the jury the ability to start to paint a picture of who this person is and it's not extremely favorable. So you've been at this a long time. Tell me what you were thinking as you're going through her phone. Because when you're looking at this data on someone's phone and all their devices, you sort of start to see their mindset, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, any anyone who's done forensics knows their targets probably better than, better than their own family. You know, we've come to this point where all of our most private information is in our devices, right? 
uh, who we are, how we talk, who we talk to, what we talk about, what our interests are, our desires. It's, it's all in there. So um, I, I've always said if I could if I could do it again and have have yet another career after this one, I I'd want to become a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So now I could take all this forensics data and look at it from a psychiatric standpoint and build this profile. Who is this person? Um, because you do it, right? You do it anyways uh, in your head. And um, so I had obviously spent an inordinate amount of time learning about Caitlin Conley from her devices, now her backup. But also her interactions with the police, her interactions with the Yoder family. And what I started to take from this is... And, and this is not a medical diagnosis, but to me as a layman, this this woman is a pathological liar. And she's able to do it with a straight face. And I think she believes what she's saying. Um, we, uh, you know, probably one of the most interesting things that happens in this case that is actually unrelated to Mary Yoder in any way, shape or form, but it comes out in the trial, um, in the second trial, because the defense is pointing the finger at Adam. And the defense makes a lot of hay out of the really rocky relationship between Adam and Caitlin. And, and, and they're, they're not making things up, right? The, the examination of the communication between Caitlin and Adam bears it out, right? I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And it, it, you get whiplash just reading these communications because it, it happens quickly. Um, and um, when they fight, it's it's knock down, drag out, ugly. And um, so along the way, uh, and Caitlin has made some unsubstantiated accusations that uh, Adam had physically harmed her. And along the way, the sheriff's, sit her down during an interview and she says, well, he not only you know, physically harmed me, but he sexually assaulted me. He raped me. And of course, you know, the sheriff's eyes are big. They're like, whoa, wait, wait, where's this from? We, you know, we, we've been on this case for months and months and months. We've never heard anything about this. You never reported it. We, we've looked at the records. We don't see any report of this. Now I never reported it. Um, so they, uh, the sheriff's, do the right thing. And they say, okay, well, uh, we're going to take a statement and we're going to assign it to be investigated. And, you know, and they did. So they take a full statement from her, a full report of exactly what happened. When did it happen? How did it happen? Where did it happen? You know, the whole nine yards. And during this statement, she pops up and says, oh, and I have pictures. And they said, pictures of what? Well, I have pictures of the injuries that I sustained from this. So she provides printed pictures of injuries, bruising and things like that, big, like big bruises. Um, and so they start going down this investigation and they involve us and they're like, is there anything at all in the digital evidence that helps prove or disprove this? And we did our digging and we come back and we say, yeah, actually there is. Um, those pictures weren't taken anywhere near the date of the incident. They were actually taken on different dates at different times in different locations. And oh, by the way, here's a whole text message conversation between Adam and Caitlin 
uh, hours after the alleged rape occurs where they're discussing what a great night they had and where they're going to go out for breakfast. So if you want a picture of a person and their level of integrity and who they are, think about that, right? You know, she did it sitting in the sheriff's office in front of a whole bunch of law enforcement, you know, swore out statements that were 100% false, accused someone of raping her that at least that incident is 100% false, provided physical evidence that is 100% false. So that's, that's what you're dealing with. So what was the outcome of the second trial? So in the second trial, uh, she's found guilty. I, she actually was not found guilty of murder. She's found guilty of manslaughter. I kind of expected that, to be honest with you. It, it gave the jury a little bit of, a, of an out uh, by having the, the lesser included charge available to them. Uh, so they were able to deliberate on both murder and manslaughter. Um, the murder charge was, you know, had the chance of putting this 20, whatever age she was at the time, 23, 24, maybe even 25 year old woman away for the rest of her life. I think that's a hard thing for people to do with anyone that young. Uh, I, I think that's, I think jurors really struggle with that as a concept. So the, the manslaughter gave them an opportunity the other thing with the manslaughter is they didn't need intent at all, right? They didn't even have to consider intent. They were able to just say she caused Mary Yoder's death, period. Why? We don't care. We don't need to know. It didn't matter. Um, so, yeah, that's that That was the result. And, you know, I, I think they got it right. So how? what did she put it in? What? How did she get this poison within Mary? Uh, that's still a little bit of speculation, Um, We don't 100% know. Unfortunately, as I told you, it took many months to identify how Mary was killed Um, because, you know, first of all, you know, she she died within a couple of days. You know, right. Just regular toxicology can take weeks, uh, which it did. And of course, the regular toxicology came back with absolutely nothing. Um, They did further toxicology. Uh, for the common toxins, like I talked about, and that came back with it. So, so months and months and months went by. Um, the expectation, the the running theory is, um, Mary made and brought to work with her a shake, like a protein shake, a nutrition shake, that she drank for lunch. That was her lunch every day, uh, and it was kept in a refrigerator in the office that was freely available to everyone in the office. So uh, needless to say, that shake from that day was not kept for months and months and months after her death. It was disposed of. Uh, so you know, it was never possible to go back and test that. Um, so the, the running theory is that uh, Caitlin inserted the, the culture scene into the shake um, at some point prior to lunch. Mary drank the shake at lunch. We know that to be true. Uh, she told people she drank it, you know, and she started getting sick hours later and, and, um, it all matches, it all fits, the timeline fits, um, which is actually how they end up on colchicine in the first place. Um, you know, like I said, the toxicology came up blank 
and what the sheriffs did. And this is just, you know, another one of these pieces of this case that's just brilliant. The sheriff got all, the sheriff's investigator got all of Mary Yoder's medical records from, you know, from the time she, and and the statements from Bill and whoever else talked to her prior to hospitalization. And they brought them all to the poison control center. And they gave them to the doctor at the poison control center that's an expert in toxins. And they said, read all of this and tell me what killed this woman. And they actually came back with a list, and on that list was colchicine. Um, based on the symptomology. Um, so that's what then caused the decision to send out uh, a sample for testing, a sample from Mary's autopsy for testing for colchicine. So why do you think she did it? So my theory is this is all about her relationship with Adam. Her relationship with Adam, no one, no one can argue, was uh, rocky at best. You know, the the arguments they had were extensive. Uh, they they got really heated. I I'm not going to rule out the possibility that those arguments became physical at some point. We have no proof of that. There there is no witness to that. There is no film of that. You know, there's no movie of it. But I wouldn't doubt it because it appears as though those arguments got really heated. When times were good, in my opinion, again, I'm not a psychologist, but from my layman's opinion, Caitlin Conley 100% controlled Adam Yoder. End to end. What he ate, what he drank, what he did in school, the clothes he wore, I, I think she controlled him end to end when the times were good. Um, and frankly, I think she enjoyed that control. Um, he was, from what I can see, he was a, a complete puppet to her. A point in time comes where he draws a line in the, in the sand and that comes to an end. And it comes when he, she gives him a handful of special vitamins that are going to help him study and cram for finals at school. She gives him this bottle of the special vitamins he goes back to wherever he lives. She emails him, or I'm sorry, she, she sends him text messages incessantly, encouraging to take the vitamins. Did you take the vitamins? You, yes, I took the vitamins. They're really going to help you. They're going to make you smarter. Um, how many did you take? I, you know, whatever, two, three, whatever he says. You need to take more. You didn't take enough. She's constantly encouraging him to take more of the vitamins. Adam, and this is at a point in time where I think Adam is starting to become not only skeptical of her, or he's just becoming more independent. He's maturing a little bit. He's pulling farther away from you know his parents. He's pulling farther away from Caitlin. He's doing his own thing. He's got his own school going on and what he wants to do there. And um, he gets horrifically ill for days on end. He, he, he probably out of stubborn stubbornness, he never goes to the hospital. When he comes out of the other end of that illness, he packs up and leaves town uh, and goes to live with his sister out of town. And he's fighting with Caitlin and he says to her in a text message, I think you poisoned me. I don't trust you. He flat out says it. I think you poisoned me. 
And I think she did. Wow. I think she did. Uh, I think she was trying to kill Adam Yoder. I think she failed at killing Adam Yoder. I think Adam Yoder then leaves town and he's now out of reach. She can, you know, she can do all she wants over emails and texts and instant messages, but she can't hurt him. Um, she can't get to him. She can't control him. He's now got his own life, right? He's moved out of town. He's doing his own thing. So what she's left with is uh, what she has at her fingertips, which is his family. And I think this is the next best way to, it, it was a twofer seriously hurt him emotionally, you know, losing his mother and then frame him for the murder. So was the timeline, did that support uh, when she had received the culture scene and when Adam was poisoned, maybe? Yes. Yes. It all fits. It, it all fits. I also believe that that's what causes the deeper dive into lethal dose amounts and, you know, calculations and the like. And frankly, I think that's part of what I, I joked that she didn't know how to measure milligrams, but I think it, it was also part of the overdosing of Mary Yoder. I mean, the amount of poison in her system is multiples of what's necessary to kill a human being. So I, I think you know, the failure with Adam wasn't going to happen a second time. Man, goodness sakes. Well, you certainly you certainly had plenty to do with this case, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I got deeper into this than, than we expect. You know, we're we're used to just a, a couple of devices showing up. You do your examination, you, you do your searches of what you're asked for. You write your your three or four page report and hand it back over and. Let's be honest, in 90 plus percent, you never hear back from anybody again. Right. So. And on this one, it just uh, kept on for a while. Well, Tony, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. And I really appreciate you being on here with us. It's my pleasure. Digital Forensics in Real Life is a production of Magnet Forensics. This episode was mixed and edited by Phil Frucklidge with production help from Lindsay Ward. Our original theme music is by Rick Andrade. I'm your host, Kim Bradley. Thanks for listening.